Good evening. You guys came to the scene tonight. We should have just kept going. Sounded great. <laughs> the old phone. <laughs> uh, on the back table is a little half sheet of paper for uh, some notes tonight. If you want to open up to into Matthew chapter 24, we'll begin looking in God's Word here in just a few minutes. Uh, Matthew 24, the end of that chapter, and then into the first part of chapter 25. Before we get to that part, though, I want us to be able to take some time to pray together uh, before we have a chance to study Scripture. Just a quick note, if you were looking for that workshop that Jack is doing tonight about trauma and grief recovery, you're not going to hurt my feelings at all if you meant to attend that. Uh, it's right here in, in room 200, so we'll stare at you when you leave, but it won't hurt my feelings at all if you'd like to go and be a part of that. Uh, he's got a good group of people over there in that, in that little workshop, so thankful for Jack and Phyllis doing that. But on the back of your note sheet, there are a few prayer needs. We'll try to go through these, and if there's other things we need to be praying about, Carl and several of you have checked on Marsha. Harvey, she's doing wonderful in her recovery, and a little bit of pain, Carl said today, but she's doing, doing really well. Uh, Miss Debbie's just on a long, long road to recovery, uh, such a long road, but I appreciate you all calling and texting and uh, check, checking in on her. I saw, I went by to see Bill and Judy today, and Judy has... Uh, of incredible perspective on what she's facing, the unknowns with her cancer. Uh, she has an important meeting with her oncologist next Wednesday, but very gospel-centered, peace in Christ perspective. Uh, so it, the one thing that stood out from talking to Judy today is when you participate in the prayer room or you send a text message to people, Sometimes that seems like a small thing, but those are huge. She talked about how much it means to receive those prayer notes in the mail or when people reach out with a text message at just the right time. And so if the Holy Spirit prompts you to reach out to someone, do that. It makes a huge impact in, in their life and provides that encouragement uh, to, to keep going. So, uh, but Bill and Judy are, are, are really doing well. Any other people you've interacted with or updates you have, ways we can pray for one another? Dub and Jackie, I know your friend's not doing well. He had surgery a week ago. Yeah. They had to open the heart back up, and yeah. I know that's hard. Okay. Yeah, I knew it didn't sound like she was doing well, so. Yes, Dean. Okay, yeah, I know she wants to be back. <laughs> so we may need to pray for Gil as much as, <laughs> or pray for Ann not to take out Gil or something like that. So those two are funny together. So, yes, James. in Houston or is this a different one? Tennessee, okay. I had the wrong person in mind. 
The one in Houston, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember you mentioned that last week. Yeah, that's great. Just a heads up for the guys uh, who want to be a part of the men's breakfast. It's coming up, not this Saturday, but the but the following Saturday. Mark Rose is going to be speaking at that. So I I love breakfast for dinner. Have I ever told you how much I love breakfast for dinner? I love breakfast for breakfast, breakfast for lunch, breakfast for dinner. It doesn't matter. So I'm happy anytime. Oh, it's the best. Yeah, no, no, crispy bacon is the only way to do it, so, oh, can you, so much respect for you is gone, and just, in just a moment, let's pray for Kenny, oh, man, that's a sad moment, <laughs> Dr. Kelly is coming back in March to teach, I forget the content this year for Southern Baptist Winter Bible Study, maybe Jeremiah, is that Jeremiah? Does that sound right? So whatever Dr. Kelly teaches is always, always incredible. So we'll have combined Sunday school that Sunday morning in the, uh, in the big building. And then Sunday night, uh, the 8th, we'll, we'll be in here and we'll have dinner together. And he'll teach for two, two hours, two and a half hours. So that's always, that's always a great opportunity. Okay, here's what I'd like us to do for, for our time of prayer tonight. I would like us to pray tonight specifically, um, and I mean just as specifically as you can in your heart and your mind, about someone you know who is not a follower of Jesus, but God has put them in your path. And the reason this is so, so heavy on me is we begin, you know, thinking about Easter. We're, we're moving toward Easter season. And, and just the way pastoral ministry worked today, uh, I had a couple of meetings where was able to share the gospel with people who are not followers of Jesus, but are asking those questions and, and really just right on the edge of, of trusting in Christ. And so I want us to pray as a church leading up to Easter. We're going to put a big emphasis on what does it look like to trust in Christ? What does it look like to, to follow him? And, and to do that through baptism where we publicly identify, I'm with Jesus. I'm a follower of him. He's my hope. And so right now, I want us to take a time as a church to pray for people that God has placed in, in our life. So let's bow our heads right now. I want to lead you through that, um, and then we'll pray, we'll pray together as well. God, we thank you for the gift of the local church gathered together. Uh, when we gather like this on Wednesday night, Father, we remember so many other local churches that are doing the same thing right now. God, thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the metro area, around the state, around the world. God, thank you for so many churches that are doing gospel ministry, especially with kids and teenagers on Wednesday night. God, we're thankful for those partnerships that you give us. God, we're thankful for the people on campus who are ministering to our kids and our teenagers. God, thank you for Jack and Phyllis and the wisdom you've given them and the experience they've had over the years of caring for people who have gone through grief and trauma and the work that they've done in our state and, and literally around the world. And God, thank you for them sharing tonight, God, that you would continue to bring healing uh, to, to people who are hurting, who are grieving. We, we all carry a lot of grief and trauma through life and a lot of baggage, but 
God, there's so much hope that comes through Christ. And, and even right now, God, as we pray as a church, that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about that hope that we have in Christ and, and our desire for others to experience that same thing. God, we know we can't talk anyone into the kingdom of God. We're not trying to sell anything. We can't argue anyone into being a Christian. But God, we come to you in prayer. And we pray, God, that you would bring salvation. God, we pray for people at our workplaces. We pray for people in our neighborhoods. We pray for people in our family. And I know many people in here, they've maybe been praying for the same person for 10 or 20 or 30 years that that person would trust in Christ. God, I pray they wouldn't give up in that. They would continue to pray. They would continue to share with them, with others, the good news of Jesus. Displaying that through love and care. God, God, our hearts, we don't want people to be baptized at Emmaus because it's a certain number of people or because it reflects on us. God, this is about your glory and about your kingdom, and we do want to be part of that, God. We believe that you call us to make disciples by baptizing people and teaching them to obey what you've commanded us. God, would you do a work at Emmaus where we are able to celebrate as we see people come to faith, as we see people baptized, as we see people grow as followers of Jesus. And God, we want to be faithful in that. We want to be faithful in sharing. We want to be faithful in praying. And God, I pray between now and Easter that you would give us many opportunities to share the gospel. You give us many opportunities to invite people to church. God, let us go through the next several weeks in a spirit of prayer for whoever you've placed in our heart tonight. God, let us be faithful in that. And God, as we think about the future, as we think about eternity, I pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight. Help us to see clearly from scripture the urgency of preparing for the future. Uh, but also how we're supposed to live right now. We, we want to be faithful to what you put in front of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake 
and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All right, we'll stop right there. And we'll, we're going to continue to study through that. Um, going back to verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but only the Father, what day or hour into verse 37, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, last week, we looked at the first half, essentially, of chapter 24 and tried to put forward an argument that maybe that first half especially is not necessarily looking at Christ's second coming, not necessarily looking at the end of the world, but is more directly focused on the destruction of the temple and the end of uh, that institution in A.D. 70, but almost all scholars, not all commentators, not all scholars, but almost across the board at verse 36 see a pretty clear transition. That remember, if you look back in verse 3 of chapter 24, just as a reminder, if you look back in verse 3 of 24, that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They seem to pull these questions together. Jesus' teaching seems to treat them separately, and now, in verse 36, he is turned to that second question, or, or kind of 2A and 2B in that, in that question. He's going to look toward the future, and he says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Now, if your Bible is the type that sometimes has footnotes or little notes in the margin, after the phrase, nor the Son, you might say a little footnote and find out that some manuscripts don't put that particular phrase in there. It seems like over the years as the copies of the Bible were made, some of the scribes looked at that and said, wait a second, if Jesus is divine, surely he knew. And so they just sort of took that phrase out. But the fact that it is there and it's in most of the manuscripts, especially the early ones, says, no, that's exactly what it says. <laughs> it says that not even the Son in his role of taking on flesh, not even the Son knows the day or the hour. And yet that still does not stop people <laughs> from posting internet videos or writing articles or writing books in which they do what not only the angels or the Son are able to do, and they come up with, this is when Jesus is going to come back. Now this type of language reminds us of Acts chapter 1. So if you go over in your Bible, like we often do on Wednesday nights, one of the best things we can do on Wednesday night, but practice Bible drill. We're going to look at a lot of Bible passages tonight. So Acts chapter 1, let's look at a connection passage on this idea of the return of Jesus and, and how we're supposed to operate and what he has to say about this. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will, it, you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So now is it going to happen? Now we're after the resurrection. We're in a new series here. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
those verses are really helpful because, again, we have an indication that it's not ours to know when Christ will return, but we do get an indication of what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for Christ. So when we get overly obsessed with when's that going to happen, when's Jesus going to come back, what can happen is sometimes you can get distracted from doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing right now, which is where Matthew 24 becomes so helpful. So when you go back to Matthew 24, we know that this passage is pointing us to the future. It's pointing us to the return of Christ. And you find there a comparison that Jesus makes in verse 37. He says in verse 37 of chapter 24, for, he's going he's to make a comparison of, of understanding this, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's going to be some parallel between the time of Noah and the return of Jesus. What's the parallel? Well, verse 38, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they were just kind of going through life until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. In this way, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, here's Noah building something, and, and we get a feeling that he was ridiculed for that, he's preparing for something that no one else sees as, as a big deal, but only he and those who were prepared were ready. In the same way, something is being built now, the church, remember not physical location, but, but the church is being built together by Christ to prepare for his coming. Many people ridicule the building of that, the building of the church, and will not be ready when Christ returns. And so you find this strong parallel between the time of Noah and the return of Christ. Let's make a connection with this. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is uh, one of those connection passages that we need to see the way that this fits together. So if you go toward the end of your Bible and you go to 2 Peter chapter 3. There's going to be another section here about the timing of the return of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, let's just go ahead and start at the beginning of that chapter, and we're going to read down a pretty good ways in, in chapter 3. So here's what Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And listen to verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. How silly of you to think that a flood is coming. How silly of you to think that Christ is going to come back. Like, it's just, life just goes on day after day. Uh, verse 5. They deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's the connection that's made in 2 Peter 3? It's the story of Noah. 
the same exact connection that Jesus made in his teaching in Matthew chapter 24. Then verse 7, but the same world, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, so water, then fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then the famous verse, verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of my favorite memory verses in Scripture to remember this idea of, ah, the life just goes on, what? No, no, this is a time for repentance. This is the time to hear the good news of Jesus. And then verse 10, that's going to be a nice connection back to Matthew 24 for us. Matthew, or I mean, this is 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come how? Like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right, let's go back to Matthew 24 and and continue on through through this section. So what Jesus has set up so far is he said this. You don't know, nor do I in this situation, when I'm going to return. But it's going to be very similar leading up to that time as it was in the days of Moses. Judgment is coming. Many people, though, will not expect it, will not be ready. They're just going through life saying one day after another, everything's the same, not going to be prepared. You need to be prepared. Verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and one left. All right, let's figure out how far we want to go down this rabbit trail <laughs> for, for a second. So when we read that, it's nobody's fault. We just immediately run to rapture uh, at that moment. It sounds to us very much like rapture language, that here's these people in the field, here's these people working. One will be taken. When we read taken here in 40 and 41, unless you're a better person than me or you have a different background than me, taken there and, and sounds like taken up into the air, taken away from this earth, taken up to be with Christ. That's what taken immediately sounds like. But taken can just as easily and just as often refer to mean taken in judgment. So the one taken here is not necessarily the one that is saved. Taken here might mean taken away for judgment, taken away. And here's the reason. Exodus, in your Old Testament, Exodus chapter 11 And then we'll talk for just a very short second about this concept of, of rapture and move on without questions again. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding, sort of. Uh, Exodus 11, I want, I want you to see here a possible background to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 when he's talking about Two people will be operating in the area. One will be taken. One will be left. What does it mean to be taken? I want you to see a, a possible and maybe even likely background. Okay, Exodus 11. Let's start in verse 4. This is the final plague. This is the, the killing of the firstborn. Exodus 11:4. 4. 
So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. There's a few wording, a few instances in there that seem to connect with some of Jesus' wording. In Matthew 24, specifically what you find here is the idea that the one that is taken in this situation is not taken in a good way in, in salvation. Taken here in this plague is, is taken for death, taken for destruction. And specifically in verse 5, it mentions a slave girl who is behind a handmill. Well, you go back to Matthew chapter 24. What's one of the examples that Jesus uses there? Matthew 24, 41. Two women will be grinding at the handmill or at the mill. One will be taken and one left. If, and granted, this isn't if, but a pretty strong possibility. If Jesus in his teaching here is reflecting Exodus 11, a story that the people would have known pretty well because of the of the ten plagues, then in this instance, to be taken is to be taken in judgment, not to be taken in rapture or, or salvation. So, again, if you've known this passage or, or understood this passage to refer to rapture, it may well refer to rapture, okay? We're going to leave that out on the table, but, but I think the stronger argument is that taken here is about judgment. Let me show you one other place that's kind of helpful for this. First Thessalonians. Chapter 4, we'll be back to 1 Thessalonians again here quite quickly in a few minutes, but I do want to show you something here. So 1 Thessalonians 4, the section from 13 down to 18, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18 refers to the return of Christ, to the coming of the Lord. Look specifically at verse 17. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Look at this verse here. Uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The interesting thing about that language being caught up to meet the Lord in the air is that the wording there, and I think significantly so, the wording there refers to a group of people who are taken out to greet a royal official as that person heads toward the town. So here comes the royal official toward your town, and a group of people go out to meet that royal official and then escort the royal official back to where you came from. So, the general understanding of this idea is not that we are caught up into the clouds to then return with the Lord to heaven. The language, the way that it's used, seems to be we're caught up in the clouds to greet the Lord, to meet the Lord, and then return from where we came from, and he comes as the king. He comes as the one coming to the earth. And so again, taken up and taken away is not raptured away, it's the idea of greeting the Lord and then return, 
receiving him as he returns to the world to rule as king. So that's my way of understanding that and being able to make sense of, of all these verses. If you understand it differently, I completely acknowledge that and, and see, how that, see how that works. Back to Matthew 24 for a second. Here's the beauty Here's the beauty of prophecy and the way Jesus teaches here. Here's the good thing, okay? Matthew 24, 42. You get a therefore. <laughs> so no matter how much we might argue about the verses that come before, mercifully Jesus says, and this is what you're supposed to do with it. So you guys do, do what you want to. Take that understanding how it comes. Here's what you're supposed to do with it. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? We don't know when the Lord's going to return. What are we supposed to do? Be ready. Stay awake. Be aware. Now that phrase, stay awake, is really good New Testament theology. You find it all throughout Scripture. So if you want to turn to your Bible, I hope you will. I, I sort of guilted into it by saying it that way. So if you want to be a good Christian, you'll follow me through your Bible. But <laughs> I didn't mean to say it that way. I want to take you through the New Testament and show you some instances of this phrase, stay awake, be aware, because it's a big New Testament theme. So let's start it here. Let's start in Acts chapter 20. We're going to look about four or five instances of this phrase, stay awake, because Acts chapter 20 is where we'll start. If this is the purpose of Jesus' teaching here, if he's saying, I'm giving you an indication of what you should do now, I'm teaching you how to live now in light of my return, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to stay awake. Okay, Acts 20 Go down to uh, verse 28. Let's start in 28. The instance we're looking for is in 31, but let's start up in 28. So this is Acts 20, verse 28. Paul is speaking to the elders, the leaders at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So there's this context of the church being invaded by false teaching and, and, and deception. So therefore what? Verse 31, therefore be alert, stay awake, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's kind of Paul's nice way of saying, I invested three really good years in you. Please don't waste it by listening to false teachers when they come in. Stay awake, pay attention. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is our next instance of stay awake, be alert. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul's giving kind of final instructions at the end of this 1 Corinthians letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 
verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So he starts there. Final instructions. What's your instruction? Be watchful. Pay attention. All right, Colossians chapter 4. So over a few books to, again, the, the end of one of Paul's letters. Colossians chapter 4. I think I've asked this before on Wednesday night, but I don't remember. Did anybody do Bible drill growing up in, in church? Okay, good. Some good old Bible drill. I always want to go like, what was I supposed to do, like this? And then you had to, you had to go to your Bible. Man, it's good times. Uh, see, now I was showing off and I've lost Colossians 4. So, <laughs> All right, Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Interestingly enough, we'll get to the section in a couple of weeks in Matthew 26, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, telling his disciples to pray with him, and what do they do? They fall asleep <laughs> praying, and he says, stay awake, be watchful in prayer. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And then in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of of the time. So Paul's speaking to the people, how are you supposed to live? Pay attention, be prayerful, be thankful, share the gospel. That's how you're supposed to live. A couple more. First Thessalonians chapter 5. So this one's really close. You only have to turn over maybe two or three pages in your Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 5. This has tons of Matthew 24 language in it. Um, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Bible likes that thief language for, uh, for the return. While people are saying, don't worry, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That phrase, there is peace and security, that sounds a lot like Jeremiah 7 language. Peace, peace, nothing's gonna happen. God, uh, no, it will happen. Verse four, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Verse five, you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, so living or dead, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Uh, let's do one more. First Peter chapter five, and then we'll make our way back to Matthew. First Peter chapter five. 
I'll see one more instance of this be awake, stay awake language. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, start in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All right, let's make our way back around to Matthew, Matthew 24. Just want us to go through those passages because every one of them reinforces this idea of what it means to stay awake, to be alert. It is interesting, the connection that the New Testament makes between stay awake and be sober. We, we see this idea of being clear-minded, of being ready, of being prepared for the, when the time comes, and, and the connections that are made there. Let me point something out to you that's really interesting about Matthew 24 and 25. So we have looked at this section running up through verse 44. And specifically, if I can point you to 42 to 44, that section 42 to 44, the key theme is, the key theme is definitely stay awake, be ready. Now what Jesus does here in his teaching, he's going to present this theme about stay awake and be ready, then he's going to skip, he's going to pick up another theme, and then he's going to tell a parable at the beginning of 25 that ties into the theme we just looked at. So the way you need to think about this, if you want to write a note in your Bible, or I think it's laid out on that little, that little half sheet as well. 42 to 44, you need to tie to Chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. So that first parable of 25 ties to the verses we just looked at, 42 and 44. Then Jesus is going to give another teaching section at the end of chapter 24 that's going to go from verse 45 down to 51. That teaching section connects to the second parable in 25, which is the parable that starts down around 25, 14, I think and runs down through verse 30. So the way it's happening, I, I couldn't have made it much more confusing if I tried, but the, uh, the way it works is short teaching section, two short teaching sections, two par parables to match those teaching sections. So two teaching sections at the end of 24, two parables at the beginning of 25 that, that parallel those. So that being the case, let's skip over to chapter 25 and catch that first parable. Then we'll come back and we'll, we'll put those two other two pieces together. Okay, chapter 25, this is the famous parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish and five were wise. This is Matthew 7, 24 to 27 language. End of the Sermon on the Mount, the two figures, the wise and the foolish. The wise build their house on the rock, the foolish build their house on the sand. That way that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount is the way he's wrapping up this final teaching section here. So, five of them are foolish, 
five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So they're all sleeping. There's physical sleep going on here. But at midnight, there was a cry. Sorry, I got distracted thinking about that old Midnight Cry song. Anybody remember that? Yeah. <laughs> at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Yeah, because you forgot. <laughs> um, but the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Maybe just a quick comment there. It makes the wise here seem greedy and, and, uh, and, and almost rude. But I think the teaching in this parable is that we can't do another person's eternal preparation for them. That's the teaching in the parable. And that's a hard, that's a hard teaching, that, that everyone is accountable before the Lord. And, and you pray for people, and you share the gospel with them, and you love them, but you can't make another person's eternal preparations for them. They, they have to be accountable for that. They have to, uh, to do that. I, th I think that's what Jesus is going for there. Verse 10, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. We've, we've encountered marriage feast language before in, in Matthew, back, back in 22 and even chapter 9 a little bit, to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. If that sounds familiar, that's Sermon on the Mount language as well. That's Matthew 7, 22 and 23, that Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's that same language being brought here to, to this teaching section. So what, what should you do? Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we look to the future, Christ's coming, by looking to the past, learning from the story of Noah. So what should we do right now? Well, the first thing is we need to be ready. We, we need to be prepared. That's a hard, it's hard to know how to share that message with other people without coming across as manipulative. So you, you have people you care for. You have people you love. And, and we need to be able to have those hard conversations where you say, I love you. You have to think about eternity. You have to think about the reality that all of us are going to face, face death. And you don't want to get into a thing where you're trying to use that to manipulate someone just to check off a box and, oh, yeah, I want to go to heaven one day. What you're doing is just saying every one of us needs to consider the future. Every one of us needs to consider our own mortality. Every one of us needs to consider eternity. Are we prepared to stand before the Lord? Um, and... And I pray that you'll have the grace and the wisdom and courage to know how to share that with people at, at the right time and in, in the right way. Uh, okay, let's pick, up the final, let's pick up the final teaching section. End of 24, starting in verse 45. Here's the second part of that. Number one, be prepared. 
Number two, verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, interesting connection there between drunkards and Jesus' earlier admonition to stay awake, and how often the Bible parallels stay awake and be sober, um, eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> One of those lessons of reading the parables is as you read parables the way they work, oftentimes your reaction to a parable should be, wow, that escalated quickly. <laughs> it goes along with just like a regular story. The way parables work, both in the New Testament and outside the New Testament ancient, is you take an everyday story and then it escalates really quickly. And when that escalation happens, yes, it's exaggerated, but it's meant to get our attention at that point is the way that parables work. It's a story that all of a sudden gets our attention. And so this guy goes from just not being prepared for the master to return to now all of a sudden facing, uh, facing this judgment and destruction. The key is, one, be prepared for Jesus' return. And two, while you're waiting, care for people. Do good, be active, which takes us to the parable in chapter 25, verse 14. Famous parable here. Matthew 25, verse 14 is gonna give the exact same message that Jesus gave at the end of 24. Okay, 25, 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them as property. To one he gave five talents. Remember, talent as in money, not talents as in Abilities. Now, you can make connections here, but a talent was a, was a large, significant amount of money, a lot of money. He gave one five to another two to another one, each according to his ability to handle it. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. Verse 18 but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Uh, I probably told you the story, but my grandfather on my mom's side, probably my best friend in the whole world, just love that guy. Uh, he didn't really trust banks a whole lot. <laughs> and so there was always the joke in our family that when he passed away, there was going to be everybody running to his house to figure out where all the, where all the money was hid. Uh, but in the ancient world, when you were holding on to money, you were burying it. Jesus tells a little parable in uh, Matthew 13, 44, where this guy's going along and he finds a treasure hidden in the ground. And he goes and sells everything he has to go and buy that, buy that treasure. So this was an understanding of how this thing would work. Now, verse 19 of chapter 25. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had two talents came forward. Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had received the one talent came forward and said, "Uh, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does our preparation look like for the return of Christ? Number one, make sure you're ready. Number two, in the meantime, invest your life. Have an active faith. Live in a way that makes an impact with the things that God has given us. Faith, saving faith, is not passive. Saving faith is active. Saving faith works. Saving faith says, God has given this to me, not for me to hold on to, but for me to invest for his kingdom, for for his purposes. That's the kind of life we've been called to live. And so rather than trying to predict when the return of Christ is going to come, we're going to say we're just going to be found faithful, doing what God has called us to do. So I want that to be true of my life. I want it to be true of my family. and, And I want it to be true of our church. Okay, let's be faithful. Let's, let's do with what you've given us. Let's invest that for kingdom purposes. So let's pray together. We'll wrap up. God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the teachings of Christ that we find in your word. We thank you for how the pieces of scripture fit together in so many incredible ways. And God, we admit that day to day, it's easy to get distracted. Uh, We don't think a lot, and we don't think often enough probably of of eternity and what your return will mean. God, as I pray as we do think about the future, God, that we would know how to share the urgency of that, but also the hope of Christ with people around us, God, that our hearts would be prepared, that we would live holy lives because of how good you've been to us, of your grace in our lives. And God, I pray that our lives and our church would be characterized by faith and action. God, that we would take what you've given us and we would use it, God, that we would be active, that we would be seeking your kingdom and your purposes, God. We don't want to hold on to resources or gifts or opportunities. We want to invest those. We want to put those into action, into service. And so, God, I pray that you would show us how to do that. God, thank you for a church that's committed to that and help us to stay focused on that in, in the years to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you all again. I appreciate it so much for being here. <laughs>